around 9.45 on the night of April 25, 1976, the 54-year-old widow of a Cannon Mills executive was at her home in Concord, North Carolina, when a man grabbed her from behind. She fought him, scratching her attacker so hard that her nails bent backwards. But ultimately, he overpowered and raped her. She described her assailant as a light-skinned black man with no mention of facial hair, wearing a dark leather coat and a beanie hat. A rape kit was done, and the police carefully collected a mountain of forensic evidence. Meanwhile, across town, 19-year-old Ronnie Long was at home with his mother, on the phone with the mother of his own two-year-old son until 10 p.m. A few days later, Ronnie received a court summons for trespassing in a park after hours. He was wearing a dark leather coat at the time. Police would ask the rape victim to be present in court to see if her attacker was present on the day Ronnie, the owner of a dark leather coat, was scheduled to appear. Disguised, she sat in the gallery for two hours in Ronnie's presence, only to identify him as her attacker when his name was called. The state would present a case without any of the collected forensic or biological evidence solely resting their case upon this extremely unorthodox and totally unreliable cross-racial identification and Ronnie's unscratched leather coat. For that, Ronnie has been in prison for 44 years. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's case will... Um, 
it's going to upset you. I'm going to tell you right now. This is a, a grotesque injustice that was inflicted and is still being inflicted on an amazing man named Ronnie Long. And we're hoping to hear from Ronnie during the recording. Uh, he'll be calling in from prison where he has been since 1976 for a crime he didn't commit. In this time of COVID, there's all sorts of complications. So we're going to try to make it work. With us now as well is Jamie Lau. Jamie is an attorney at Duke University's Wrongful Convictions Clinic. And Jamie, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm going to do something unusual here. I actually want to start at the end. We, we almost never do that. But there's a quote from a judge named James Wynn, who's a circuit court judge in the 4th District Court. So this is a serious guy. And Judge Wynn said, and I quote, prosecutors clearly had evidence that any defense counsel in the world, not only in 1976, but in the history of this country, would have wanted or needed and which should have been supplied. And yet we did not provide it. He goes on to say, what is it about us that we want to prosecute and keep people in jail when we know evidence may exist that might lead to a different conclusion? Why is that so offensive to us now that we want to protect illegal activity from 44 years ago? What's the harm of looking at the new evidence, he said? When did justice leave the process so we let our rules blind us? To what we all can see. Wow. Well, during the course of argument, it made us optimistic that after 44 years, um, an end may be near to the injustice that occurred in Ronnie's case. It's been an incredible, difficult journey through the courts to get his case to where it was on May 7th of this year. You said we'll start at the end. And the end at this point in time was an argument on May 7th in front of the full Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is 15 active judges, all have been appointed by a president. Judge Wynn was making that quote in response to arguments from the state of North Carolina that more or less was asking the court to disregard all the evidence that is now known about in this case that was hid from Ronnie at the time of his trial in 1976. And Judge Wynn also discussed sort of the circumstances of 1976 and the conditions of black males, particularly in the South in 1976, and how they were wrongfully convicted in great numbers. So at the moment, Judge Wynn offered his viewpoints during the course of the stakes argument, we knew that we had succeeded in conveying to the court the seriousness and the magnitude of the injustice that occurred in Ronnie's case. As promised, we got a phone call from Ronnie, and I must warn you that there was a poor connection with the prison. So Ronnie's a little hard to hear, but what he has to say needs to be heard. So please bear with us. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from an inmate at Albemarle Correctional Institution. This call will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, press 5 now. To decline this call, hang up. 
Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hello? Hi, Ronnie. Thanks for calling me. I know we have limited time, so let's get right into it. Now, you grew up in Concord, North Carolina, right? Seven brothers and sisters. Can you tell me a little bit about your life before all of this horrible stuff happened? I played sports when I was in high school. I graduated from Concord Senior High School. I learned how to lay brick, set stone. That's the kind of little work I was doing with my dad. I would go to work with him sometimes, you know, make money with him. I had a son. I spent a lot of time with my son, him and his mother. They used to love to listen to Cool in the Game. He liked Cool in the Game. When I left the street, he was three. Now, I read about this one time. Before you had your son, way before the incident that landed you in prison, there was an encounter that you once had with some police officers. They they pulled up on you, harassed you a bit. Hey, you know, what you doing around here, boy, type of thing. And you responded, isn't this America? Aren't I free to walk on this sidewalk? Is that right? I was coming from a girl house. I was coming from a girl house one night. The area that I was in, it was on this white. They stayed up in that area. So I was coming home one night. These two white cops pulled up behind me and asked me, uh, where you coming from? What are you doing in this area up here? America, did you walk over the sidewalk here? They took me, cuffed me, took me downtown, put me in a room. I stayed in the room maybe about two hours. Not also came up and told me, said, yo, you can leave. I just got up, walked out, went home, went home. And that's it seems to be how he got to be on the radar of the local authorities. And then on the fateful day of Sunday, April 25th, 1976, at around 9.45 p.m., a wealthy white 54-year-old widow of a Cannon Mills executive was burglarized and raped. An awful, awful crime. And Cannon Mills was a major employer in the area. And that name's going to come to play a big role in this in this story. The victim said that while she was preparing food for a beach trip the following day, a black man snuck into her home and grabbed her from behind. She said the intruder told her that he only had 15 minutes as his friends were waiting for him outside, like a horror movie, and he proceeded to rape her. She later described her attacker as, quote, yellow looking, and quote again, not blue black, maybe wearing gloves, a beanie hat, no mention of any facial hair, and a dark leather coat. She also described a violent struggle where she scratched her attacker so hard that her fingernails bent backward, which would definitely have left a mark on that leather coat. The victim said that whenever she tried to move, he would slam her head against the ground. Then the phone rang, startling the attacker, who gathered his things and left through the front door. The victim then rushed over to her neighbors naked, where she was able to call the police, and they arrived around 10 p.m. The victim has since passed away. Um, but that being said, she was rushed to the hospital for a rape kit and the doctor performed all the tests and collected all the biological evidence and everything else. What happened next is that Detective Eisenhower of the Concord Police Department arrived at the victim's home around 10.30. He photographed the house and began collecting evidence, including latent fingerprints, carpet samples, suspect hair, paint samples, as well as pieces of the victim's clothing and partially burned matches. And he later brought them to the State Bureau of Investigation Office at Raleigh for examination. He also lifted a latent shoe print from a column near the porch. Now, this is important later 
as nothing but the shoe print was ever discussed at trial. And before we go any further, we need to state clearly that Ronnie had a solid alibi. And remember, the crime took place at 9.45. Ronnie, at around 9.30, you were at home with your mother, waiting on your father to get back with the car so you could head out to a party in Charlotte. You were on the phone with the mother of your child. Your mom hopped on the phone a few times to say hello to her grandson, right? Yeah. He on the phone, too, but he... You can't hardly understand what he's saying, but he be trying to talk. You know he, he on the phone too. My mama's on the phone. Uh, she downstairs on the phone. I'm upstairs on the phone, and uh, I'm waiting on my dad to come back with the car. So when my dad came back, I got in the car. About ten o'clock, went up to a party in Charlotte. So, Jamie, can you take us back to how Ronnie came to be implicated in it, and how he could have possibly been convicted in spite of no evidence at all. None. Zero. Yeah. Ronnie, very much like other young black men in 1976 and still today, was harassed by law enforcement officers. That harassment directly led to what ultimately becomes this 44-year-old wrongful conviction. On April 25th, the victim is assaulted and raped in her home. A few days after that, Ronnie receives a trespassing charge at the local park that was adjacent to his home when he shouldn't have been there. And during that time, it appears that he was observed wearing a black leather coat. The officer who stopped him recalled that the person who was described by the victim had been wearing a dark leather coat on the night of April 25th when she gave a description to law enforcement. And despite Ronnie not matching other very prominent features that were included in her description, the officer decided that perhaps he was the individual who had assaulted the victim. I mean, it was significant, the disparities between her description of her assailant and Ronnie. She described her assailant as a yellow black male. In the South at the time, to describe somebody as a yellow black male meant a light-skinned black person of mixed origin. She never mentioned her assailant having facial hair. Ronnie had facial hair and it's indisputed that he had facial hair on April 25th, 1976, when she was assaulted. So despite him having a different complexion, having facial hair where she never described facial hair, he becomes a suspect. Officers then go to her home and says, we have reason to believe that the individual who had assaulted you will be in the courtroom on this date, 15 days later, May 10th, 1976. And we'd like you to come down to the courtroom to see if you can identify the person who attacked you there. So immediately in her mind, she thinks they've done some investigation and have identified a likely suspect. But all they had done is made the connect um, to the fact that Ronnie had a black leather coat similar to what she described. The real curious thing with respect to law enforcement asking the victim to go to the courthouse to try and make an identification is they had a picture of Long that they could have shown her when they went to her and asked her to come to the courthouse. And they could have did it in a fair procedure or as fair as these identification procedures can be with the inclusion of fillers to ensure that she's selecting him from memory and not because he looks most like the attacker or because she's being presented a suspect in a very suggestive way. They elected to forgo that. So she's brought to the courthouse, dressed in a disguise, 
because she's fearful that if her attacker was there, he'd recognize her. She describes during her testimony being terrified. She sits in the courtroom for an hour and a half in Long's presence and fails to identify him. And only when his name is called and he walks up to resolve the trespassing charge, which was dismissed that day, did she say he's the one. But it's telling because we later learned during her testimony at trial that there were only 12 black males in the courtroom. She quickly eliminated several of them because they had afros or they were older. She described one as being old and hunched over. And she says that he was the only one that looked remotely similar to her attacker. And identification evidence is already flawed and highly unreliable. But here, you can just take her words that she's just picking the person that's most likely to be her attacker that's present in the courtroom so she can end the experience where she's traumatized and terrified. So that, in essence, becomes the only evidence against Long. And here we are 44 years later trying to undo that identification. And I'm glad you brought that up, Jamie, because we know the most unreliable eyewitness identification is cross-racial. This fits exactly into that category. And then, of course, there's still room for it to get worse. So, Ronnie, take us back to the day that you were in court for the misdemeanor trespassing charge when you had no idea, you couldn't have had any idea, that there was a rape victim in the gallery who was being led to believe that her attacker was in the courtroom that day. And the craziest thing is that you two were in each other's presence for nearly two hours before she ID'd you, right? Yeah, they had me on a a misdemeanor trespassing charge. So I go downtown. Now I'm sitting there from 9 o'clock to the day. When he called my name, I stood up and walked down front, me and my dad. This is when the police say, this is when they say that she ID'd me. The same two detectives that was on this case, that been on this case the whole time, they were sitting in the jury box. She testified that it was exactly 12 black in the courtroom. Ain't none of these people in here looking like me. She's supposed to be looking for a young black man that assaulted her. But she distinctly stated she looked around and looked around and looked around. It's in the transcript. And I didn't see nobody. I want you, I want you to think about this. She said she sat in the courtroom, man, for over an hour and a half looking around and she never didn't see anyone. The reason why she didn't see anyone, you understand, said because of the description that she gave the police was a light-skinned black man with no hair on his face. I'm sitting up in there, you understand, saying dark skin with hair on my face. So I didn't match none of the description, you understand, saying that she was looking for. That's why she couldn't pick me out. When she picked me out, you understand, saying that when they called my name, run along, we to the front, run along, uh, if you're in court, I said, yeah, we come down front. That's when she said she recognized me. She didn't recognize me, she recognized my name. Because number one, how you gonna sit in the courtroom, you understand, know, for a whole hour and a half, ain't eleven, it ain't but twelve blacks in there. You gonna sit in there for a whole hour and a half and you don't see this young black man that you're looking for. The reason you don't see it because he's not yapper. He got he got hair on his face. The court asked this woman, could the police department that told you to pick run alone? She said they could have. I don't know. That's in the trench. They could have. I don't know.
lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So the victim makes this shaky identification, tells the detectives, but you've got no idea that any of this is going on. You're there for this misdemeanor charge, which gets dismissed, and then you go home. But that was not the last you'd see of law enforcement that day. I walked out the courtroom, got in a car, went home, went to sleep. I wake up two hours later, my mom telling me, oh, this is back out there, they want to see When Ronnie was picked up, he was not told that he was suspected of this rape. Instead, he arrived at the station at 6.45 p.m., was read his rights, and the police claimed that they asked permission to search his car, but they hadn't. And then they testified to finding gloves, matchbooks, and a beanie in the car. Ronnie maintains that the gloves were his, but the beanie was not. I follow the police downtown. I used to drive with gloves on. But when I get out of the car, I take my gloves off. I stick them up over my son's eyes. I get out of the car. I lock the door. I got on a black leather jacket. I get out, go up there, they tell me I'm a suspect in a raping burglary case. I take my keys up. They take my keys up and run out the door with me. The same two detectives that was in the courtroom that morning. 
Yo, man, where y'all going with my keys? Bring my keys back here. They just going to look in your car. You ain't got nothing to hide, are you? No, but y'all ain't gave you permission to look in my car either. So they go down, look in my car. They come back in, they got my... They took my leather jacket off of me. They had some napkins and some other stuff. They had my gloves. They had a lime green toboggan that I had never seen a day in my life. And for anyone who doesn't know, a toboggan, I didn't know, a toboggan is a hat, like the one described by the victim in this case. So the police come back with what they claim to have found in your car. Go ahead, Ronnie. They said, you got to your car. If you want these items back when we do complete our investigation, sign your name right here. So they got a little X on the paper for me to sign my name. Say, sign your name right here if you want these items back. Okay, I want my jacket back. I want my jacket back. I want my gloves back. I don't know who that that is, but I know I want my jacket and gloves back. So I signed the paper. Come to find out it's a consent form. They searched my car. So they tricked you in order to make it seem like you consented, and that way it would have made the search technically legal. They planted the lime green hat or toboggan. Now... The police got a lime green toboggan at court saying that this is the hat that the perpetrator wore. I'm telling my lawyer, man, I don't know where that is, man. I ain't ever had that hat, man. That ain't my hat. My lawyer took the hat inside out. It, 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 it's red as looking hat. It's red as hair in the hat. You got a lime green hat with red hair in When I had it, I was like, hell, hell, I got no hair now. I got black hair in my head. My lawyer said, you see the red hair of this man this man is not yellow. I ain't nowhere close to being yellow. The, the state would never let me DNA test that hat. I wanted to have a hat DNA tested. They didn't never, never, never let me do that. So we now come to the conclusion that the police planted this beanie in the car so that they could have another, you know, well, <laughs> really another. There is no other evidence. So that they could have something that they could use against him. And I say something they could use against him because remember all of that evidence Detective Eisenhower collected from the crime scene? Well, if the red hairs that they found in the beanie that are clearly not Ronnie's hair bother you, just wait because it's about to get way worse. Again, the crime scene evidence comes back from the State Bureau of Investigation in Raleigh and none of it matches Ronnie. But since the rich white widow of an executive of one of the biggest employers in town just ID'd him as her rapist, rather than just doing the right thing, the just thing, the evidence never even made it to the prosecutor's office, let alone the defense. So the police withheld the evidence from both the defense and the prosecution. Let me just repeat that. The police withheld the evidence, not just from the defense, but from the prosecution, just in case the prosecution might have decided, hey, wait a minute, we got the wrong guy, that the police decided to play judge, jury, and I mean, they might as well have played executioner because poor Ronnie's been in prison for 44 fucking years. I mean, this is, um, yeah. I mean, just when I think I've heard it all, um, and Jamie, you're living this day in and day out now. I mean, what what can you add to that? Because it gets worse from there, right? So they not only tested this evidence and it didn't match long, when it didn't match long, they made the decision that they wouldn't turn it over to the defense or the prosecution, uh, which we contend, and we argued this at the 
May 7th hearing that we had in this case, that there's a possibility that the prosecutor could have decided not to go forward with this case at all had he known that all the forensic test results pointed away from Ronnie and towards another suspect. There was suspect hair collected, brought to Raleigh, examined by the crime lab, determined by the crime lab to be in the parlance of the lab report of Negroid or Mongolian origin, meaning that it came from a person uh, who was either Asian or Black. And we know that that hair that was collected, that was suspect hair, didn't match long. If it didn't match long, then the suspect, the person who should have been incarcerated for 44 years, there's the evidence of who that person's identity is. And it's remarkable in the fact that they believed this would be probative. They collected because they thought it would be probative. All indications are that it did come from the suspect. But when it didn't match long, they kept it from everybody. So the prosecutor would go forward on the basis of this completely unheard of identification procedure. And, and I have to tell you, Jason, I'm very skeptical whenever any client offers a suggestion that evidence may be planted. But as you look at this case and what officers did, keeping evidence away from the prosecutor, it really makes you stop and say, oh my goodness, this is completely consistent with the behaviors of the officers in this case. And then when Long says, those are my gloves, but I've never seen that beanie in my life, you think, why would he acknowledge owning one but not the other? And the only explanation is because the officers in this case set out to ensure Long was convicted that included lying, hiding, and with the beanie manufacturing evidence to ensure that he would spend the rest of his life incarcerated and convicted for this crime. And for whatever reason, the state of North Carolina is just willing to ignore that altogether and continue to argue that Long is guilty of this crime. It's crazy. Right. And there's no evidence that he ever owned a beanie. There's no photographs of him in a beanie. There's no, nobody knew about any beanie. There's also the fact that the victim had fought her attacker um, with with all of her strength. And she had scratched the attacker so hard that her own nails bent back. You know what so as I do? If you take a leather jacket and you scratch it, and you look at it from under a microscope, ain't no way in the world you can hide that scratch. That scratch going to be there. The FBI had my coat. Look, at, look up under the microscope. Took my coat, look at that. There ain't no scratches on my coat. But yet still, she said, that's the coat. That's the jacket. That's the perpetrator wore. There wasn't no scratches on me. There wasn't no scratches on the jacket. Well, there's a good explanation for there being no scratches on you, your face, your leather coat. It's, it's painfully simple. It's because you weren't there that night. But she ID'd you. They were trying to make the square fit the circle, and they were willing to bend the rules and break the rules. They planted evidence in your car and tried everything they could to make sure that they got a conviction in this case. And people were out in the street protesting as well, right? So, but when they arrested you, they offered you a plea deal so they could make all of that public outcry just go away, no? They locked me up. When they locked me up, they offered me a, a seven-year plea. They offered me a seven-year plea. Told me that I would be back home in three years. And they made it explicitly clear that if I didn't take the plea, if they would try me for my life. 
got people in the street demonstrating. I got my family out there in the street. I got people in the street, you know what I'm saying, that support me. I knew exactly what they wanted, man. They wanted me to pay, paid out to that charge so they could put it in the front page in old letters. Long page, this is a great charge. So all of y'all are going to holler and yell and throwing things, you know what I'm saying, going on. But I knew I couldn't do that because, number one, my dad said, uh, I didn't raise y'all to say you did something when you didn't do it. I turned down the plea. So I was facing two deaths. God was in mysterious ways, though. Before they took me to court the same year, 76, the state of North Carolina abolished the death penalty. But then we get to the trial itself. And this is going to shock exactly no one. Uh, but the jury was all white. Let me just say that again. This is an all white jury, Concord, North Carolina. 1976, the jury was handpicked by the Cabarrus County Sheriff. And get this, three of the members of the jury worked for Cannon Mills. And you'll remember that the victim's husband worked at Cannon Mills as well. So the jury chairperson at the time created a master list of jurors. To get a summons for jury duty, you had to be on that list. And prior to Long's trial, he brought that list of master jurors first to the sheriff and allowed the sheriff to strike through any person on that list that the sheriff deemed unfit for jury duty. He then brought the list to the Concord Police Department. And testimony is that the chief of police and some of his deputies sat there and did the same. So law enforcement, the very people who investigated this case, ended up lying about this case, about the evidence collected in this case, played a role in the selection of the jurors who ultimately found Mr. Long guilty. And in this trial, every single witness that testified for the state of North Carolina was white. Every single witness that testified on behalf of Ronnie Long to demonstrate his innocence, to prove his alibi, to show that he was nowhere near the victim's home on the night this attack occurred, was black. And by selecting an all-white jury in segregated Concord, North Carolina in 1976, ultimately what we had was a circumstance where the jurors were being asked to decide between finding their neighbors truthful or finding the people from the other side of the tracks, the black side of town. They would have had to find them truthful over the officers who were their neighbors who are the people who lived in their community, their side of town. That's what it would have taken to find Long not guilty. And of course, we all know how it played out. And this courtroom, it was a racially divided court with blacks on one side and whites on the other. Um, and of course, now the, the really awful result, uh, but predictable result of this sham trial was that on October 1st, 1976, with his whole life in front of him, Ronnie Long was convicted and sentenced to two life terms. His mother fainted and a riot nearly ensued. Um, Long himself has called his conviction a, quote, modernized lynching sanctioned by law. When they found me guilty, you know, they started fighting in the courtroom. When they started fighting, and I started to try to find I started to find I started to move. My mom stopped. 
She grabbed, she was sitting behind me. She grabbed me by my belt. I turned around and looked at her. She said, boy, you wouldn't make it out the front door. She always told me, she said, lock that door. Lock that door right there. Get that man. I want him in Raleigh tonight. And listen to this. So after Long's conviction, Concord bubbled over with fury. The next day, hundreds of protesters descended on the city's downtown, staging a demonstration in front of the courthouse. And for days, 50 or more police officers in full riot gear stationed themselves at a nearby park. And the police chief warned protesters that violence would be met with force. So, I mean, nothing has changed. And the, and the bravery, the courage of these people who protested, putting themselves in grave danger from the same police force that had just framed their friend, their neighbor, their fellow human. I had spoke with his trial counsel, Jim Fuller, prior to the May 7th arguments. And he said, Jamie, I've only been maced one time in my life. And it was after the verdict when outbursts occurred in the courtroom and law enforcement decided to clear out all the supporters of Long. And he said officers were beating a young man and he tried to pull the officers away and they turned and sprayed him, Long's trial attorney, in the face with mace. Nothing has changed. Um, it's really, uh, it's really hard to, you know, <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm trying to be optimistic and, you know, I think we are on the verge of change and, but, uh, it's, it's remarkable how much things are as they were 44 years later. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The post-conviction litigation history, can you walk us through that, Jamie, because it's quite extraordinary in and of itself. It's been a long process. So it began in the 90s after he was convicted. He filed his first, uh, what we call here in North Carolina, motions for appropriate relief. They're the post-conviction review petitions that initiate uh, post-conviction proceedings. And it was related to the jury. He was ruled against during the course of those proceedings. That was then appealed in federal court, arguing the same things that he didn't commit the crime and that his trial was unfair, in part because of the way in which the jury was seated. And he was ruled against in federal court. Over the years, he tried to get people to help him. And then in 2005, the Innocence Project at the University of North Carolina took interest in the case and the present litigation began. Uh, They found an attorney to work with Ronnie. That attorney did all the work necessary to uncover not just the lies, but the evidence that was withheld from Long at the time of his trial. And they went into state court and held an evidentiary hearing where the judge heard testimony related to the withholding of this evidence. That's a real interesting proceeding because the prosecutor, the individual who tried Ronnie Long back in 1976, took the stand and testified for Long that he didn't have copies of these reports. He didn't know that this testing was done. Had he known that it was done, he would have required that it had been turned over. He also talked about a sexual assault kit that we haven't even talked about, that they collected one from the victim, and then it subsequently disappeared. Jesus. Yeah. So he testified for Long, but despite all that, the judge in state court ruled against Long and found that he hadn't proven that his rights were violated. The case then went to the North Carolina Supreme Court. There are seven justices on the North Carolina Supreme Court. One sat out the decision, and as a result, the Supreme Court split 3-3. So Ty went to the state, Ronnie's conviction was upheld, and he was still incarcerated. It then went to an organization in North Carolina called the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission. They reviewed the case and their focus was trying to find the sexual assault kit that was collected and disappeared. They did not find it, but they actually discovered that in 2008, during the course of those proceedings, officers lied again by saying that they had no physical evidence remaining in the case in their custody, when in fact they had all the latent fingerprints that had been collected from the crime scene. That's when I got involved. And as you're reacting to how just atrocious and an affront to justice this case is, I had the same initial reaction. The other attorneys I work with at the Wrongful Convictions Clinic, we worked to file another habeas petition on Ronnie's behalf. It was dismissed. 
because the district court said that we had failed to bring the fingerprint related evidence in state court prior to filing our habeas petition. Of course, it would have been brought in state court had it not been hid during the time that the state post-conviction litigation was ongoing. Uh, We appealed that dismissal. The Fourth Circuit reversed and sent it back to the district court. Uh, Then the district court once again granted a dismissal on behalf of the state. The district court said that uh, while we had shown that evidence was withheld, that it was favorable to Long, but that the state court was reasonable in determining that the evidence was immaterial to the outcome of his trial. So it was dismissed again, and we appealed that decision, which came in July of 2018. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral arguments in May of 2019. A panel entered a decision two to one saying that Long had failed to demonstrate the materiality of the evidence and that the state court again was reasonable. That decision came down in January of 2020. We then asked for full court review. It's called a petition for rehearing in Bonk. And what that triggers is that full 15 judge review of the case. The court agreed to hear it while sitting in Bonk. And that's the argument we had on May 7th of 2020. So it's been it's been a long fight to get to the point where we know that the judges are at least, you know, seeing the injustices here that we saw as evidenced by the statement of Judge Wynn during the course of those oral arguments. And so here we are, ending where we started with the words of Judge Wynn expressing his frustration over how this happened to Ronnie, among so many others. I hope you all feel that same frustration and anger right now. Judge Wynn said, quote, prosecutors clearly had evidence that any defense counsel in the world, not only in 1976, but in the history of this country, would have wanted or needed and which should have been supplied, and yet we did not provide it. What is it about us that we want to prosecute and keep people in jail when we know evidence may exist that might lead to a different outcome? Why is that so offensive to us now that we want to protect illegal activity from 44 years ago, end quote? And of course, he was referring to the illegal activity on the part of law enforcement in this case. Quote, what's the harm of looking at the new evidence, he said. When did justice leave the process so we let our rules blind us to what we all can see, end quote? You know, the the fact that the the cops took all the evidence from the crime scene and never turned it over alone. That should be it. They knew it wasn't him from the beginning. It just hurts my heart to think of this life, this, this, this poor fucking guy. Since we recorded this podcast with Jamie and Ronnie, I read a quote from Ronnie's mother saying that she is just waiting, this is a quote from her, just waiting on Ronnie to get out. God, let me live to see him get out of there, end quote. Since 1976, Ronnie's grandmother, his two sisters, and his father have all passed, and unfortunately, they were joined by his mother on July 11th, 2020, rest in peace. The family asked Jamie to speak at the funeral about Ronnie's case. 
Ronnie still has his wife, Ashley Long, waiting for him. She started a petition on change.org that I've already signed, asking Governor Cooper to commute Ronnie's sentence. I hope you'll join me. There's a link in the episode description. Just scroll down, click, and let's bring him home. Now, back to the episode as it was previously recorded. Now it comes to the closing of the show, which, of course, I call Closing Arguments. This is where, Jamie, I thank you again for being here. Uh, Ronnie, thank you for calling in. And now I'm going to turn off my microphone and leave my headphones on and just listen. Jamie. Thank you, Jason. Um, What I would add is the listeners here, I'm sure, have heard about cases that involve hiding exculpatory evidence. Separately, they've heard of cases involving misconduct and potential lies told on the witness stand, cases involving racial injustice. And here we have everything together in one. We have the original trial prosecutor testifying on behalf of the defense, acknowledging that materials were not only hidden from the defense, but from him as well. We have evidence pointing to another individual as the perpetrator We have evidence of misconduct and lies from officers. And despite all that, 44 years later, Ronnie Long sits in a prison in North Carolina. I ask everybody listening to this to seize this particular moment that we are living through in history by taking one action among what I hope is many to help Ronnie achieve justice and his freedom. To do that, I hope not only that you'll go to change.org and sign the petition, but also contact the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper. His email is roy.cooper, C-O-O-P-E-R at nc.gov, and tell him to free Ronnie Long now. Because while we prove his innocence in court, which we plan to do, the governor can make this injustice right tomorrow by commuting Long's sentence to time served and letting him walk free. And it's 44 years past due for that to occur. And I hope you all will send a message to the governor that if he truly believes that Black Lives Matter, that lives matter, that he would use his executive authority to see that Long goes free, not next week, not next month, that Ronnie needs to be free now. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, and thank you, Jamie. And I'm going to just jump in for one more minute and say that if anyone here knows someone who knows the governor, direct outreach can be uh, a game changer. So thank you very much, Jamie. And now I'm going to turn it over to our featured guest, Ronnie Long. I want to let you know, man, that I appreciate the platform that you let me speak on. I appreciate you and you let me tell my story. A lot of people, you know, that still don't know who I am. There's a lot of people you know, that have heard of me, but they don't know the circumstances behind the case. I appreciate what you did for me, or what you're doing for me, and hopefully one day, you know, that the Fourth Circuit make the right decision. I can prove everything, you know, that I'm saying. Yeah, the evidence they had against me, but no more than the eyewitness identification. They had flaws, they had flaws, and they know. You know, if they knew they had the right man, if they knew they had the right man, then why did they pick foul ourselves and disappear? If they knew they had the right man, you know, why did they withhold 16 pieces of physical evidence that they tested by the FBI? 
if any of that evidence had pointed towards me, then they would have put all that evidence to court. They know that it had, they had the wrong man. They know that I was no person that assaulted this woman. But yet still, they still put me there. They gave me this life sentence. And I done that 44 years. Irregardless, you understand, whether or not I beat this case now or whatever, I done, they done still took 44 years out of my life. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.